0: that adults crave is elementary communication even more than children do, especially in a world overloaded with content where they're bombarded. Any big, bold block becomes an oasis. They gravitate, they magnetize to it because they're in a sea of busyness. So all a block is the anatomy of what makes something iconic. So what that means is, It's the reason we call it Kleenex to Kleenex and a Coca-Cola. But we think of that as something that's organic that has to happen over time by luck. But if you come up with a big, bold, emotional phrase or image and you repeat it to anyone, you can make something iconic in the mind of a specific person or audience in a matter of five minutes rather than five or 50 years by hope or luck. You can do it in five minutes with deliberation at will every single time.
1: You work hard in your business. On the Profit by Design podcast, we ask the big question What has your business done for you lately? Hi, I'm Dr. Sabrina Starling, the business psychologist, the author of How to Hire the Best, and your co host on the Profit by Design podcast. Weekly, my co host, Mike Bruno, and I bring you tips, tools, and strategies from our own experiences and from the experiences of our guests who are entrepreneurial thought leaders and real life entrepreneurs, all to support you in making intentionally profitable and sustainable business decisions to live the lifestyle you desire. At Tap the Potential, we know that you want to be freed from the constant demands of your business. In order to do that, you need a business that supports your life. The problem is you have a cash-sucking business taking over your life, leaving you frustrated and discouraged. We believe work supports life, not the other way around. We understand you're paying a team and you're still having to do it all. There should be accountability. It shouldn't be this hard, which is why through our proprietary coaching system, we help thousands of business owners just like you have more time for what's important to them and grow profit by 300 to 800%. Here's how we do it. First, take our assessment at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment. Next, meet with our success team lead to debrief your results. Then, Join our Better Business, Better Life program. By the end of your first year with us, you will have more time for what matters to you and more money in your bank account than you've ever had before. So take our assessment at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment. So you can stop working so hard for so little return. Take your life back. Profit designers, today I'm bringing you an interview with Jamie Mustard. Jamie teaches the science of what causes anything to stand out in the modern world. Through his work, Jamie has observed the primal laws of blocks, which explain why anything stands out and endures the mind or fails to. In his book, The Iconist, through pop stories and comprehensive research, he shows how blocks solve the problem of us all being made invisible as we compete for less and less available attention in a messaging and media oversaturated world. He teaches how blocks allow anyone in any field to stand out at will based on the natural primordial laws of human perception. As host of the popular Radioactive Talk Show on KXL 101.1 FM in Portland, Oregon, Jamie interviewed hundreds of designers, innovators, artists, and agents for social change who are having an impact all over the world. An avid consumer of popular culture, Jamie is a graduate of the London School of Economics. He is obsessed with the economics of attention and has consulted for Intel, Cisco, and Semantic. In my interview with Jamie, he breaks this down into not just why we entrepreneurs need to have a simple way to get our message across in terms of marketing and branding, but also why this is important for our teams and for our overall quality of life as entrepreneurs. I think you will find this discussion eye-opening and I'm excited to be diving in. So, Jamie, welcome to the Profit by Design podcast. Thank
0: you for having me, Dr. Sabrina. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I think the timing is perfect and I'm going to just be totally transparent and brutally honest. Your book, The Iconist, that I've been reading all week is so timely for the issues that we at Tap the Potential have been grappling with because our biggest struggle from a branding and marketing standpoint is we do so much. How on earth do we boil it all down to one thing? that will stick. That clearly communicates what we do. And in the iconist, you just came right out and said, you don't have to, you have to hit the most important thing, like that arrow. And then that will land and stick. And then everything else will follow. People will hear that and they'll be interested in those other things. That for me, I think you've solved in just a week of me reading this book, you've solved an issue I've been grappling with for three or four years now. So I really appreciate you.
0: <laughs> well, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> I'd love to back up and give what you said in relation to the book, but we're
1: going to dig in.
0: Okay, good. I mean, in the book, I talk about this concept that I call dilution, which is means we're all being bombarded with so much content, we've become more invisible. Our voices are quieter than they ever had before. So let me give you an example of what that means. If you were walking around the world in 1950, you probably saw in your daily life, going to work, coming home, going to the supermarket, about 250 advertising messages a day. By 1970, that was 2,000 advertising messages a day. By the late 90s, last time somebody seriously studied this, it was up to five to 7,000 advertising messages a day. That was before the internet hit full stride, before social media. So it's probably upwards of somewhere to ten to 15,000 advertising messages a day. A person couldn't process a 1,000. So what that means is anybody trying to communicate is one of tens of thousands. So it's harder than ever to be seen or heard. No matter how good or great you are, it's harder to be ever to be seen or heard. And that's the problem that my book solves.
1: That is such a real problem. And I can speak about it from the consumer's standpoint. I just shut down with respect to all the social media, the marketing that comes my way, all the emails that land in my inbox. It is over. And I am someone, I believe, who has pretty good boundaries around my use of social media, probably more so than most people. And so for the average person who is being exposed to all the digital content that is out there, that bombardment is real. It's a real thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a woman in the late 90s who was doing some research for Microsoft and Apple. Her name is Linda Stone. She coined the term in the late 90s, continuous partial attention. And what she meant by that is that we were all being bombarded with so much information that we're only partially paying attention. Now, most of us think about that the way you just described it, which is I'm distracted, I'm bombarded, I'm overwhelmed. The approach that I take in the book is, what does it mean for you if you're trying to get your art, your science, your podcast, your message, your offering, your buy-in from your boss, buy-in from your colleagues, trying to be relevant, when the people that you're talking to are only partially paying attention. And that's what I call dilution. Our voices are made, like, you know, a practical example of this, say I was applying for a job in 1960 in a small town somewhere with 100,000 people. It's a big town, okay. Maybe I would be, I'd see the the ads in the classified ads, and maybe the HR person that sees resumes gets 50 applicants, okay? Today, because we apply for jobs online, That person may get 1,000 applicants, 2,000 applicants. So what does that mean? They can't look at each applicant with the same intensity or the same way. So you get lost in that shuffle. And that applies to every aspect of life. Same thing with online dating to how many items are in a supermarket. There's so much of everything. No matter how good you are, it's harder for people to see you. So in my book, I talk about the primal laws of what causes something to stand out and take hold in the mind. It's very simple. It's the kind of thing that when you ha- start to have it explained to you, it's just breaking down how we like to perceive things. You go, oh my, it's out there. So it's, you easily start to see it all around you once you start to read the book.
1: So what does it mean to be iconic?
0: What it means to be iconic is to be the first choice, to stand out. Like if there's a crowd of 20,000, you're the one that gets noticed. And then you're the one that gets noticed and you're the one that gets the deep engagement. When there's, in a world overloaded with content, you're the one that stands out and is heard. That's what it means to be iconic. And remembered. And remembered. And that's a process.
1: So in the book, there's a really great analogy about being on a superhighway. And your client or your prospect that you're trying to reach is zooming down that super highway. And there are multiple exit points on that super highway and we want to be the exit they choose. So how do we become that exit?
0: Okay. Well, the first thing you need to understand or realize is that uh, no matter how good you are, it's likely that people are having a harder time seeing you. Any, so the first rule is anything busy in a world overloaded with content no matter how good it is, gets instantly discarded. So the first thing you have to understand is that people have to be able to understand who you are and what you're offering them, some aspect of who you are and what you're offering them before they have a chance to think in their lizard brain. So there's a chapter in the book that I call Road Signs. And I talk about how road signs work or a warning label works. If we were looking at something and there's a warning label on it or if we see a heavy piece of machinery, and there's a warning label on it, we stop and we fixate for a second. There are certain rules to what makes a warning label that you could apply to every aspect of what you do, whether you're a musician, an engineer, an artist, a business person, a person sending an email, a person trying to get buy-in from their coworkers or their boss, a person talking to their kids. So the book teaches you how to turn you know some aspect of what you do into something that has the same power as a stop sign, so you get that instant magnetism, that instant fixation. And then as long as there's something behind it that's genuine and real, people will then engage further. And then like you said earlier, they'll remember you. So how do we create that road sign? A lot of times when we create, when we are hard workers and we make something great and we put something great in the world, we want to share with people everything that we do. So we put forward 25 things. I'm good at this and I'm good at that. I can do the other. And, then, and so nothing gets seen because in a world overloaded with content, people repel the busy. So an analogy I give in the book is say I were to throw a golf ball at you. You would catch it if I would just lob a golf ball at you. Okay? Yeah. Now say I threw 10,000 golf balls at you all at once. What would you do? You would cower and you would turn away and <laughs> you'd probably you go in the fetal position. i would duck. It. Yeah, that's how we, we don't notice it because the water was turned up on us very slowly, like the boiled frog. Yeah. But that is how we are being bombarded with information. So even though we rely on all this micro communication emails and Google ads and text messages, we're also constantly trying to push it out because we can't process all of it, even a fraction of it. So the first thing that you need to do is to to distill your, to lead with something that people can instantly understand before they have a chance to think. And this can apply to music. It can apply to art. All of this gets explained. A presentation, you could apply it to a PowerPoint. You can apply it to anything. But you want to create, so this instant understanding before anybody has a chance to think. And so the way you just do that is if you have 20 things about yourself that, and you're really excited about everything you've created and you want to share all of them, what you do is you ask yourself one single question, and that is, what is the best of myself of all these 20 things? What out of those 20 things intersects with what my customer most cares about? There's an intersect point. You take that and you present it oversized on your website, like they land on your website and you present it Sesame Street, like a road sign, uncomfortably oversized. And if you do that, even though it feels uncomfortable, because having all eyes on you and presenting something in a bold way feels uncomfortable, that intersect point, people will then look deeper and engage with the other 19 points.
1: Yeah, so that's it. It's about being really bold with that. Bold
0: and simple, like having the discipline to find that intersect point. even if some people can figure it out in a day, some people would figure it out in six months. But when we look at what you do, when you're talking about people having balanced lives and doing more with less time, most people in this world are experiencing a tremendous amount of a thing that I call drag," and that is, they're presenting all this busy stuff. And they haven't self-identified the best of their offering, what their audience cares about. So even though they may be the best in the world and they can solve problems, they feel frustrated and they feel incomplete because they know that there's this friction being created that people aren't grasping that. And I call that drag. Okay. So if you find that intersect point, you lead with it like a Sesame Street, bold, oversized message on your website and all your points of customer contact that goes away. And there's your customers connect and they look deeper. And, you know, this problem of dilution, it actually has serious psychological implications on us. You know, this concept of drag This like when we know we're not being seen or heard. And there was a book written, I think, in 2004 by a guy named Barry Schwartz, who's a professor of social theory at Skidmore University and a psychologist. And he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, which talks about choice overload, And how that there's actual psychological ramifications from too much choice. So, and those psychological ramifications are as follows. Paralysis, when we have too much to choose from, we won't choose anything at all. Anxiety, what if I choose the wrong one? Dissatisfaction, you choose something and you go, God, I could have chose the other one. Maybe the other one would have been better. I experience this every day. And then depression, like just, I can't, I'm just depressed about making all these choices. Well, I found in my work that those exact same psychological ramifications apply to feeling like you can't get noticed because there's too much content around you and you can't get the deeper engagement. Scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. That's what the founder of Fast Company said when he endorsed my book.
1: It is. And you're speaking so clearly to me because most of the people who find us at Tap the Potential are overworked business owners who are working 70, 80, 90 hours a week. So if we are putting out there a message with 20 choices and 20 things that we do, they're already overloaded and overworked. So we're trying to even get in there. So I hear this from the perspective of it is even more important for us at Tap the Potential to be putting this really clear, bold, one thing message out there that hits what they're looking for repetitively. And I want to talk about the repetitive piece first, but from a psychological standpoint, I really want to highlight what you're saying about blocks in the book and the very primitive way in which we relate to blocks goes all the way back to childhood that kids love blocks of information, simple, bold blocks. And we adults are no different than that. And when we can present our communication and information in a bold way, block, it is much more likely to be heard. So I want to hear you define blocks and talk about that.
0: I'm going to tell you what George Orwell has in common with Sesame Street.
1: Oh, what?
0: Okay. Because that's blocks. Okay. Yeah. So let me start with elementary learning and elementary education. Okay. There is science and research that shows that when we present complicated things with big, bold, simple imagery, it changes the way we relate to complicated information. Okay, it makes it we retain more of that information. We have more appreciation for that information. We can learn better. We connect to complicated information and learning and perception through big, bold imagery. This is and there's a research that I cite in my book that explains how that works. But basically, when it comes to kids, we communicate in very elementary ways from Sesame Street to if you look at an elementary school workbook, big, bold images. Well, as we get above elementary learning, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. And what I argue in my book is that adults crave this elementary communication even more than children do, especially in a world overloaded with content where they're bombarded. Any big, bold block becomes an oasis. They gravitate, they magnetize to it because they're in a sea of busyness. So all a block is the anatomy of what makes something iconic. So what that means is, It's the reason we call it Kleenex, a Kleenex and a Coca-Cola. But we think of that as something that's organic that has to happen over time by luck. But if you come up with a big, bold, emotional phrase or image and you repeat it to anyone, you can make something iconic in the mind of a specific person or audience in a matter of five minutes rather than five or 50 years by hope or luck. You can do it in five minutes with deliberation at will every single time. And once something you use a block over and over and then, I then put it into your mind, Sabrina, once you take it to your mind, it's no longer a block, it's an icon. So all a block is, is the anatomy of an icon or an icon waiting to happen. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. And I wanna relate a real specific example that many of our profit designers will be familiar with. So Mike McAllowitz has his book, Profit First, and he has reversed the equation on profit, the typical gap equation. And so he has sales minus profit equals expenses everywhere. It's out there. And that is a, so profit first, sales minus profit equals expenses. That's what Jamie is talking about. That is a block. It's iconic. It's memorable. It sticks. Can I give that your audience like
0: a very specific example? And again, we could talk about how it applies to music or art or speeches or something, but maybe let me give you a specific kind of business example. And one thing I wanted to say, I just before I do that, I want to touch on something that you said a few minutes ago about these people that are working 80 or 90 hours a week. I would argue that if you use blocks to communicate what you're doing, you could get more done in half the time. You get rid of drag. It's that thing where you notice people aren't giving you the attention you deserve, and you can't quite put your finger on what that feeling is. That feeling of like, what if I can't get attention? It creates paralysis. That same as choice Overville. It creates anxiety. Why should I... What if I can't get attention? I'm not even going to try. I know I have something great. I know my business is incredible, but I'm not getting the attention I got 20 years ago. Dissatisfaction with your life because you're not getting the attention you know you deserve. And ultimately, depression if you fail to get attention. So there's psychological ramifications of this. But to give a quick business example, there's a great story in the book that I talk about. This guy, right, you know, in 1931, you know, right after, you know, in the heart of the depression, This guy gets a $3,000 inheritance, which is a ton of money then. And he just wants to bring his family to a small town where he can open. He's a pharmacist and he wants to open up a pharmacy. So he chooses this and he figures if he takes this money, he could open up a pharmacy in a small town. So he chooses this town called Wall in South Dakota in 1931.
1: I've actually been there, Jamie.
0: (laughs) Now it's a landmark, right? So they go to this town they open up the pharmacy and nobody comes. There's 326 people in the town. But U.S. Route 16A goes right through the town. Nobody comes into the town. They're all just driving straight by. Well, one day, and so he's now realizing the town is busted, broke. It's the Depression. Maybe I made a mistake. Well, one day his wife, Dorothy, this is Ted Houston and Dorothy Houston. One day Dorothy gets an idea. The interstate's going by. Just nobody comes into the town. Well, what do these people that are driving by in their weather jalopies need? Well, it's hot out there and they're tired. This is before AC was what it is today, okay? So she got this idea to put a massive road sign, what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, out on 16A saying, free ice water, wall drug, okay? And they put this sign up, this massive Sesame Street type sign out there, and before they have a chance to even get back to the pharmacy, it's overrun. They're getting their free ice water, and they're buying everything. things. Today, it was probably the first company, small, medium, or large business ever to go complete. Like, it's the first example of something going viral. Today, Wall Drug is a national landmark in South Dakota, right? So you have to figure out what is your free ice water. If you do 20 things, what's the free ice water aspect of what you do? And then say it oversized, uncomfortably Sesame Street oversized. And when I was saying earlier that Sesame Street relates to george orwell in 1984 the way they message is these big oversized images and they work even if they're not true but if they're true they work better and they work more powerful so the same mechanism that is manipulating people in 1984 is the same reason we love sesame street the big bold monolithic imagery the count one or the way, reason we use children's workbooks orwell Was defining as nefarious isn't nefarious. It's just how human beings prefer to enter complicated things with a big, bold anchor. And not a slogan, not a tagline. That stuff is salesy and repulsive, but something that represents why you do what you do or a result you can achieve for them that they really need where they are.
1: I have a question. One of the sayings that I just said spontaneously in a coaching session years ago to a client is, hey, your work needs to support your life, not the other way around. And it landed for that client. I have been using that, it's become an immutable law for us at Tap the Potential. It's kind of like how we do things. And I noticed that it really lands with other people. So I'm curious, is that an example of a block?
0: I think that's a, if it was said oversized and repeated, it's a pretty good example of a block. Because, you know, in America, we work very differently than, I went to a college in England, and I spent a lot of time in Europe, you know, we think very differently about work. I mean, we work really hard in this country and we define ourselves by work in this country, almost unusually so. And in this context, 87% of Americans by survey don't dislike their jobs, dislike the work they do. Yet, when you go to a cocktail party, the first thing someone says to you, Dr. Sabrina, is what do you do? Yeah. Right? So there's a big conflict going on there. So when you say something like, you know, the true secret of life, we're taught in America that the secret of happiness is hard work. And I work my butt off. That really isn't the secret of happiness. The secret of happiness is balance. Play, you need to recharge, family, faith, all those things being in harmony. That's the secret of life. We inherently know that. So when you say your concept of your work should support your life, it completely contravenes how we think about work. In America, but we know it inherently to be true.
1: Yes. Well, and, and Jamie, I'm going to tell you that there is a subset of Americans who work harder than most Americans, and that's entrepreneurs who are working 60, 70, 80, 90 hours a week, and the business has taken over the life. And so it's a dominant discourse in the entrepreneurial world where we hear over and over, grind it out, you know, and it's almost a status symbol of how hard we work. Like we kind of brag about it. Yeah. So really coming at it from the status of, or the mindset of, you know, I'm not better because I work so hard. I'm better when my life is supported by this business and the work that's being done rather than the business taking over the life and taking life away. Business needs to give life. And so just like you said about so many Americans hate their work. And yet, when we go to a cocktail party, we're asking people, what do you do? Creating a great place to work where the business owner is excited to go to work and the team members are excited to go to work. That is a business that supports life. It's life giving rather than sucking life away.
0: Listen, anybody could read my book and figure out how to create their road sign. And if you don't Go on my website, theiconist.org. If you can't figure it out after reading my book, send me an email and I'll help you. But what's so interesting about what you just said is that, you know, entrepreneurs are the lifeblood of what drives our economy. So we need to honor them. I mean, I think small business is 95% of, or maybe not 95, but maybe 80 to 90% of the U.S. economy. Yes. Right? So if it's a small business, it's an entrepreneur. And if it became a medium business, it started. So this is what's driving our country. So we need to honor these people. And one of the things that I would say about the grind, I don't think it's about the grind all the time. It's about working efficiently, especially in our modern world, not working just to grind to grind because you can grind yourself into nothing. So I think you have to be willing to grind, but you have to work in a way where you don't have to. And by understanding that thing about yourself that's the best of yourself, that's the emotional gut punch or the problem you solve or the purpose that's going to resonate with your audience, that has a real power in terms of making entrepreneurs happier people. You know, because what ends up happening is when they're repeating it all the time and they're saying it huge, it reminds them that of what they're offering and it makes them feel like they can be seen. Mm-hmm. So it works internally as well as externally.
1: Well, and I think it also, what you're getting at internally too is the team. And so we need to have powerful blocks that connect with our team in terms of just getting the message out and being heard by team members because team members also often are working really hard. There's a lot of information coming at them. And so when we can boil the message down, into a simple block. Now the whole team can be cohesive in communicating the messaging.
0: I really agree with you. I think when you nail that thing that will inspire your audience or your customers, I think it will also inspire your team internally. That's when you know you have it right.
1: Yes. So Jamie, you talk about breed in the book, the snowball effect. Can you break that down for us?
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, what that means is breed means uh, blocks repeated exhaustively everywhere equals demand. So, when you find that emotional gut punch and you repeat it everywhere exhaustively, it will accelerate or equal demand. That's what breed means, an acronym. And, you know, an example of that, you know, another business example of a block versus a slogan like, Coke adds life, have a Coke and a smile, McDonald's, we're loving it. These are slogans, and they don't work. And also, if you don't do it oversized in a Sesame Street-like way, it doesn't work.
1: So being modest, this is not the place to be modest. No, I mean, one of
0: the things I talk about in the book, because I've been doing this for almost 15 years, and I came up with this idea 15 years ago. The book only came out five months ago. I've been doing this for people for a long time, in every category, famous musicians, painters, CEOs, every kind of professional you can imagine, small business owners, I've, been, I've worked with them, to political campaigns. But so Breed, you know, one example, another example that I give in the book that I love is FedEx in the 1970s. They used to have this thing, this block, not a slogan, not a tagline, that they said huge everywhere when it absolutely has to be there on time. Or was it overnight? I can't believe it. I've said it. Now, that doesn't mean much to us today because we have you know everything's done electronically and we have we can docu sign and before that we had fax machines but in the 1970s before fax machines before digital technology if you had to for an inheritance or for a contract on a house or for any sort of valuable or document that had to be there at the time that was a gut punch and that is the equivalent of the free ice water sign now if i was working at fedex What's going to inspire me when it absolutely has to be there overnight. If I'm on a team, I know what my task is. I know what our company's about. It works internally. Now, if I work at McDonald's and I'm not trying to put McDonald's down and it's like we have this thing that's not a block, that's a tagline, I'm loving it. That might even make me feel bad about what I'm doing because it doesn't mean anything. So if it sounds salesy and it doesn't sound like it's about your customer in terms of the best of what you can offer them in terms of where they live, It's a slogan and a tagline, and it's not a block.
1: When you just said that about, and the team will know what the result is, it has to be there overnight. That landed for me because that ties right into accountability. You know, in terms of just bringing everyone together on the team, we are all doing this one thing and your role, everything you do supports this one thing that we do that our clients and customers most appreciate and want from us.
0: Yeah, and I would argue that your listeners would have less grind if they used this device of communicating, getting people to come into their complexity. The book is called The Iconist, The Art and Science of Standing Out, for anybody that wants to know. I would argue that just by communicating with that thing that communicates the mission, but also where your customers live, it takes away the grind and it creates the opportunity for a more balanced life. It will cut your time in half in terms of efficiency so that your work can support your life. Life is about two things. When it comes to what you choose in terms of your life, it should do two things in terms of your work. One, it should be all meaning. Well, work is about meaning. Once you get above 80 grand a year, there are studies that show that finances have less and less impact on our happiness, okay? And so the minute you do there, meaning becomes everything, okay? So life is about meaning and we should choose work that gives us meaning. Now, if we are in a situation where our work doesn't give us meaning, then like you said earlier, it should support our meaning. It should support something like our family or something we love to do that gives us great meaning. We should be aware, okay, I'm doing this job and it pays me really well. I one time asked Kevin Carroll, who's an incredible social change agent, he talks about play as a form of social change. And he talks, you know, I said to him one time, what if you're a garbage man? How do you chase your rubber ball? How do you have meaning in life and he said well i used to know these garbage men on the east coast that love to fish garbage men get paid well and they have incredible benefits and these guys love their jobs because they directly connected it to the fact that it supported their passion of fishing right so find meaning in your work or really 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 be accountable for how that work is supporting these passions in your life that you really care about. And you'll be a much happier person.
1: I totally agree. So Jamie, you mentioned you've been doing this for 15 years. The book just came out. What got you interested in this to begin with?
0: Well, there's like what I think got me interested in this. And then there's what probably got me interested in this. Okay. So what I think got me interested in this is that I, you know, went to a social science school and studied economic history in London. And I just had an unconventional childhood and I saw a pattern. I stuck, I came across this pattern and I thought, I saw this interview with Billy Joel when I was 20 and it sparked something. And then maybe 10 years later, I was watching a documentary. And I thought there was a connection between these two things, that there might be a pattern as to why we lock onto things. And so I thought that's what it was, but I think that, can I be vulnerable for a second here? Yes, please. The reality is, is that I had kind of hippie parents that made very strange choices and I grew up in severe abject poverty near downtown Los Angeles. I'm of mixed race. I grew up in Hispanic, Mexican, Guatemalan, El Salvadorian, and Armenian neighborhoods in East Los Angeles. And I felt it was hot, it was concrete, and I felt pretty invisible, and I felt like I didn't have a lot of life opportunity ahead of me. So I felt a deep sense of invisibility, I think, as a child. Mm. And I managed to Houdini myself. I mean, I had severe neglect. I wasn't even in school regularly pretty much my whole life. I barely even went to elementary school and high school. I mean, these things were fleeting and intermittent for me. So I was semi-literate at the age of 19 and then managed to graduate from the London School of Economics. So I would always find a way to kind of Houdini myself to these different levels. And I never connected it. Literally, the book was probably done before I connected the fact that I had been dealing with invisibility my whole life, and that all of a sudden I'd come up with these primal laws that fixed and handled invisibility. I didn't want to talk about myself. I felt vulnerable, I felt ashamed, I felt humiliated by what I'd been through in a lot of ways. I just wanted the social science of my work I, to stand by itself, like Malcolm Gladwell. When my agents or my publisher would say, you need to talk about what you've been through. So, People can understand, you know, where you're coming from. I was first very turned off by that idea because I wanted the work to, but eventually I came around to see that there is a connection. But I wouldn't really look at it. I wrote the introduction of the book last. You know, I do talk about it in the book, but I wouldn't look at it until only the last few years. Was I willing to accept that? Yeah.
1: Wow. I really appreciate that. As an author myself, I know the journey of writing a book and the point where we have to crack open and be vulnerable and how much courage that takes to do that and then weave it into the story of the book. So I really acknowledge you for that, Jamie.
0: Yeah. I mean, I find it really ironic that in my overcoming of invisibility, I probably was very concerned with that without even knowing that I was concerned with it. And that's why I was probably looking for that pattern, those patterns without even realizing I was looking for those patterns. But I find it really ironic that rising out of those circumstances, I deal with CEOs that run, you know, companies from 2 million to billions. Okay. And that are successful and they come to me Sabrina, and they say, We're really successful, but we feel this drag. We know there's a friction that people are not connecting to us. God, if people could connect every time and we weren't getting lost in the shuffle, we'd be doing 20 times what we're doing. And even though they're really successful, it bugs the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. That's what I call drag. And that's what The Iconist solves. So the irony that, like, even very successful people, really struggle with this concept of invisibility. So that, I find great irony in
1: that. (laughs) I do as well. And I'm curious, on the cover and throughout the book, you have the eye. What does that mean for you?
0: You know, I mean, I really obsessed on that cover about kind of, I wanted the cover to represent certain concepts in the book, warning labels, road signs, pop art, things that stand out that we notice. So I wanted the combination. The eye represents attention. Like I said at the beginning of this, you know, conversation, scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. People Google something, they get 100,000 results. The top 10 get the most attention. Even if we put an ad out there, there's still 10 other people, 20 other people. How do you become the first choice? The I represents you getting that attention, you getting that eyeball. That's what it represents to me.
1: Wow, I so appreciate what you've been sharing with us, Jamie. Let's tell everybody where they can get a copy of the book, how to get a hold of you, and if they want to work with you further, how they can reach out to you.
0: Well, I have a new website that's launching in the next couple of weeks, but my current website is up and I talk more about this concept of drag, which really isn't in the book, but I've kind of flushed it out more on the new site. But people can buy my book every place you can imagine, from Target to Barnes and Noble to it's every it's in bookstores. It's Amazon. You can pretty much buy it anywhere. The Iconist, the Art and Science of Standing Out. Uh, it's on Kindle. And I also read the audiobook.
1: Oh, I love when an author reads their own audiobook. I did that for mine as well. That is an extra special touch. And it's a lot of work. So thank you for doing that for us.
0: So, and then you can reach out to me at theiconist.org. And people send me emails all the time saying, how about this? How do I handle this? And I'm not going to go to work full time for your company. But if it's a simple problem where I can quickly help you establish what that block is, I will just fire back or even have a phone conversation and help you out. My purpose, like you said at the beginning with entrepreneurs, I honor these people because they drive our economy. I want them to be fulfilled. I want them to be complete people. I know this drag is making things more difficult for them this digital overload than it needs to be. So in every case, I wrote this book as a means of helping probably that audience more than any other audience.
1: I appreciate that. I appreciate your heartfelt feeling, your sentiments around that and your willingness to help in that way. Because I also know when you're firing back an email that you are encapsulating years and years and years of experience and helping others identify their block. And that gets boiled down into that email that gets fired back at that entrepreneur. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, theiconist.org. And just to put a capper on what you said, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's made up or not, where supposedly Picasso was walking down the street in. The south of France. And somebody came up to him and said, Mr. Picasso, paint me a picture. And in 30 seconds, he paints a flower. And the person goes to grab it. He goes, no, $1 million. <laughs> and he says, no. The person says, it took you 30 seconds to paint that flower. And Mr. Picasso says, yeah, but it took me 30 years to know how to paint a flower like that in 30 seconds. Yes. So I think with my book, you can figure it out. But if you can't, call me and I won't charge you a million dollars. I'll just help you out.
1: That's awesome. You're better than Picasso, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for being with us, Jamie.
0: Thank you for having me. I love this conversation, Dr. Sabrina.
1: I did too. If you're like most business owners, you have a cash-sucking business that's taking over your life. After the first year in our Better Business, Better Life program at Tap the Potential, you'll have more time for what matters to you and more money in your bank account than you've ever had. Get started. Take our assessment at tapthepotential.com forward slash assessment. Thank you for spending time with us today. Join our conversation in the Profit by Design podcast Facebook group. Share your thoughts on today's episode, ask us questions, and let us know what you wanna hear about next. Visit our website at profitbydesignpodcast.com to access resources from our sponsors and tools we've created for you. Subscribe to the show on whatever platform you're listening to right now. There's a subscribe button right there. Go ahead and hit it so that you always get a notification when we release a new episode. And finally, share our podcast with a friend if you know a friend who would enjoy it. Thanks again for listening. This is real life business. Keep your chin up. Keep moving forward. You got this.